Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It was an exceptionally short week this week, with only two cases, so we'll take a slightly deeper dive into both of them, as they're both very interesting. Also, worth noting, this week, the Fifth Circuit agreed with the Eleventh Circuit that non-citizens forced to perform work of any sort in private ICE facilities have a cause of action for suit under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Listeners, if that case comes through your door, please send it my way. I beg of you. If the circuits were anything like me this week, they were locked to their TVs on Wednesday, capable of only the most basic of human functions. What a relief Wednesday was, with Bernie memes to boot. Here are the cases. Our first case is a matter of Dick Yar published by the BIA. This case is about the divisibility of a controlled substance offense out of Utah. Mr. Dick Diar is a lawful permanent resident from the former Soviet Union. Interesting wrinkle. In April 2019, he was convicted of possession of a controlled substance in violation of Section 58-37-82AI of the Utah Code and received a suspended sentence of 365 days incarceration. Although he never actually served any time in prison, his conviction nevertheless matches the definition of a conviction under immigration law at INA Section 101A-48. DHS therefore charged him as removable under INA Section 237A-2BI for being a non-citizen convicted of violating a law relating to a controlled substance. Although this decision is a bit unclear, it appears that the immigration judge determined that Utah's possession statute covers more controlled substances than the Federal Controlled Substance Act, known as the CSA, and that Utah does not require that the prosecution establish which drug a defendant possessed to obtain a conviction. That means, it would appear, according to the IJ, 
that the statute is overbroad and cannot make an LPR removable. DHS appealed, and the BIA reversed and remanded in this case. So we meet again, categorical approach. Recall that for an LPR to be deemed removable for a criminal conviction under most provisions of immigration law, courts must apply the categorical approach. This requires a comparison of the elements of the state or federal criminal conviction with the elements of the federal removal offense. In this case, we're comparing the Utah Drug Possession Statute with the federal removal provision at Section 237A2BI. If the Utah statute covers more conduct than the removal statute, then the statute is what we call overbroad, and it's not a categorical match to the removable offense. When it comes to drug offenses, the criminal offense is very often overbroad because most states criminalize the possession or use of more controlled substances than do the feds in the Controlled Substance Act. And that's the case with Utah. It criminalizes possession of edizolam, whatever that is, while the CSA does not, meaning that the Utah statute is overbroad as compared to the drug-based removability provisions under immigration law that are all based in the Federal Controlled Substance Act. If, as here, a criminal statute is overbroad, an LPR's criminal conviction doesn't make him removable, unless, possibly, the criminal statute is divisible into separate crimes what we call separate elements of committing the offense. If a criminal statute is divisible, courts can look at certain limited conviction documents to determine what the non-citizen was actually convicted of, an analysis called the modified categorical approach. With drug offenses, the modified categorical approach may allow a court to determine whether in fact a non-citizen possessed a drug that is listed in the federal CSA thereby making the non-citizen removable. Whether a statute is divisible is a complicated question that the Supreme Court seems to change ever so slightly every couple of years. And that's what this BIA decision is about. Although the Utah statute is overbroad, the BIA held here that the statute is divisible as to the controlled substance that a defendant possessed. To reach this conclusion, the BIA rejected the analysis of the Tenth Circuit in both a published and unpublished decision regarding a similar Colorado statute. Instead, the BIA held that the Utah Possession Statute is divisible for three primary reasons. First, the BIA reasoned that because Utah penalized possession of a large amount of marijuana different than it penalizes possession of other amounts or other drugs, a prosecutor in Utah must establish the identity of the drug, thereby making the identity of the drug an element and not a means of committing the offense. And this logic for divisibility, based on the different penalties a criminal statute entails, flows from the BIA's reading of the Supreme Court's recent Mathis decision. Now, personally to me, it seems that the stronger conclusion is that a prosecutor in Utah must simply show that either someone possessed a large amount of marijuana, or he didn't. The prosecutor need not, it appears, prove whether the drug is, say, edizolam or heroin. Therefore, and again, to me, it seems that while the statute may be divisible as to the amount of marijuana, the statute is not relevantly divisible between the non-generic possession of edizolam and the possession of a drug covered under the CSA. 
Put another way, imagine a statute is divisible into subparts A, B, and C. Subpart B is the portion that is broader than the removable offense, and subpart B is not divisible from subparts A or C. Under those circumstances, it doesn't really matter, at least based on my reading of the case law, whether subparts A and C are divisible from one another, because subpart B is the problem, and it's not divisible from the rest of the statute. Just saying. However, the BIA next looked to Utah's jury instructions, which appeared to require that a jury identify the identity of the controlled substance that a defendant possessed, which would indeed strongly support a finding that the controlled substance's identity is an element of the offense. Although a Utah appellate court does not appear to have addressed the issue, the BIA read the Utah jury instructions as so requiring. Finally, the BIA also found persuasive the fact that in Utah, defendants can be prosecuted separately for possession of two different drugs. This also supports a divisibility finding. So, the BIA applied the modified categorical approach and reviewed the charging document and guilty plea to discover that Mr. Dictyar possessed methamphetamine, which is indeed listed in the federal CSA, making his Utah conviction a removable offense. Mr. Dictyar, therefore, will likely lose his green card. I've given some thoughts throughout this one, but here's one more observation. Mr. Dictyar argued before the BIA that DHS had waived all of its appellate arguments regarding the divisibility of the Utah statute because DHS failed to make any of those arguments before the IJ. In a footnote, the BIA said it didn't matter. Remember that one, practitioners, in circumstances where the non-citizen has failed to argue a certain legal point before the IJ, but wants to argue it before the BIA on appeal. And that is matter of Dictyar. Our second and last case this week is Uncoma v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on January 21st, 2021. This is a case about motions to reopen and equitable tolling, and it's the second published decision from the Third Circuit in this very case. Miss Uncoma was an LPR from Zimbabwe, but was ordered removed after an IJ determined that her conviction for conspiracy to commit wire fraud qualified as an aggravated felony likely as defined at INA Section 101A43U and Section MI, although the decision does not say. During proceedings, her U.S. citizen husband filed a Form I-130 petition, the first step necessary for Ms. Uncomo to potentially readjust to LPR status. An approved I-130 would make Ms. Uncomo potentially adjustment eligible because an aggravated felony conviction is not a per se bar to adjustment of status under INA Section 245A. And that's because there is no aggravated felony ground of inadmissibility, and criminal activity only bars a non-citizen from adjustment of status if that activity makes them inadmissible under INA Section 212 or if that activity qualifies as a discretionary bar to adjustment of status. But here's the thing. Miss Uncomo's U.S. citizen husband was himself incarcerated. Quite the twist. 
which made attending the I-130 interview impossible. But, perhaps nefariously or perhaps not, USCIS refused to adjudicate the I-130 petition without her husband present. Catch-22. I-130 petition pending and unadjudicated, the IJ ordered Ms. Uncomo's removal and the BIA affirmed that decision. USCIS then finally approved the I-130 petition without the imprisoned husband attending an interview, but only after Ms. Uncomo filed a writ of mandamus in federal court to force USCIS to act. So, now adjustment of status eligible because there was an approved I-130 from her U.S. citizen husband, Ms. Uncomo filed a motion to reopen with the BIA so she could apply to adjust before an immigration judge, concurrently with filing an INA Section 212H waiver of inadmissibility. It seems that Ms. Uncomo conceded that her criminal conviction made her inadmissible, probably because she believed her conviction was a crime involving moral turpitude, thereby requiring a waiver of that inadmissibility. That's what Section 212H is for. But the BIA denied the motion, first finding the motion untimely. The BIA went on to say that despite Ms. Uncomo's 30 years in the U.S., despite the BIA's regulatory sua sponte authority, and despite the BIA's equitable tolling authority, that it did not, quote, have the authority to grant relief solely on equitable or humanitarian grounds, end quote. On petition for review, the Third Circuit found this holding, quote, perplexing. Judicial speak for incorrect. The Third Circuit reversed and remanded for the BIA's failure to consider whether it should equitably toll the 90-day deadline to file a motion to reopen. The Third Circuit first held that it could review this issue because the BIA's decision rested on, quote, reliance on an incorrect legal premise, end quote. Although Ms. Uncomo did not use the words equitable tolling in her brief before the BIA, the Third Circuit held that she had properly exhausted this issue under its, quote, liberal exhaustion policy, end quote. The Third Circuit held that Ms. Uncomo had exhausted the issue because she had argued for reopening based on, quote, a significant change of circumstance, end quote, which should have put the BIA on notice that Ms. Uncomo was requesting equitable tolling of the motion to reopen deadline. This was particularly the case, as many of the arguments were based on DHS's 18-month delay in adjudicating the I-130 petition, a pretty extraordinary circumstance that may warrant equitable tolling. Having adequately exhausted the equitable tolling issue, the Third Circuit held that the BIA erred when it failed to consider whether equitable tolling was actually warranted in this case. So, Ms. Uncomo gets the opportunity to present her motion to reopen to the BIA, again. Congratulations attorneys Jared A. Gonzalez and Cheryl Lynn for litigating what appears to be a hard-fought case that is not yet over. Here are three more observations. Note the weird quirk under immigration law. Although the aggravated felony conviction does not bar Ms. Uncomo from adjustment of status, unless it's also an inadmissibility provision, it does bar her from LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA, a far easier and less expensive way to retain her green card. 
It is for this reason that Miss Uncomeau needed another way to adjust status, in this case the immediate relative I-130 petition from her U.S. citizen husband. Also note, throughout this decision, the Third Circuit never actually refers to USCIS as USCIS, but rather as DHS. In an effort, it seems at me at least, to indicate that the ICE prosecutors and USCIS adjudicators of the I-130 are all part of the same DHS agency, and should act in concert. We practitioners would do well to remember this. Too often, it seems, that in district court and appellate litigation, DOJ gets away with arguing that these sub-DHS agencies are like separate fiefdoms and can't be expected to coordinate. But they're not separate fiefdoms, and they should be expected to act in concert. Finally, I mentioned at the top of the case that this was the Third Circuit's second published decision in this very case. The first was a 2019 decision denying Ms. Uncomo's arguments that the immigration judge lacked jurisdiction over her case based on Pereira v. Sessions. And that is Uncomo, the Attorney General of the U.S. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.